uh, to Psalm 34. And what you're going to find is that, you know, even though in our culture and and we need an entire holiday uh, to remind us to be thankful, uh, and it kind of feels like we're obligated to be thankful, what we're going to find as we look at Psalm 34 is that David also felt obligated to be thankful. He felt obligated to be thankful. He couldn't help it. He had no choice. God didn't leave any room in his life but to be thankful for all that God had accomplished. God's deliverance of his life, David, compelled him to gratitude towards God. He had no choice. David saw God in display at work in his life in such a way that David had no choice but to be thankful for all that God had done. And as I read this psalm and I think of David's life and all that God did through his life, how wonderful would it be if we lived a life having no other choice but to be thankful for all that God has done for us. If we lived a life where the only option left for us was to praise God for his intervention into our circumstances. If we had a relationship with God that he always acted on our behalf, that he always worked in our situation, that he always worked I don't know, all things together for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. That's what his word says, right? If we lived in such a way that we couldn't help but be thankful, that would be an awesome life, wouldn't it? That would be a great life. And so we're going to discover that together as we look at Psalm 34. So would you stand with me for the reading of God's word? It's a long one, I'm going to warn you, so don't lock your knees. I don't want you to pass out. But here we go. The reading of God's word. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me from all of my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted. 
and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Amen? The reading of God's word, you may be seated. So as I look back over my life, and maybe you can do this in your own life as well, but as I look back over my life, and I'm only 31, I think I told you that last week, but I'm only 31, and as I look back over my life, already I can see moments and times in my life where I feel that God has helped me to persevere in my faith helped me endure difficulty, and where I feel like I can see how God has already redeemed my life. There have been moments that I've been met with that have tried to take the, the, the wind out of me, right? To knock the wind out of me, try to rob me of my faith, but I can see God's hand at work in my life, and I can see how God has redeemed me. When I look back, they say that hindsight is twenty twenty, right? When you look back over your life, you can see times and moments in your life, undoubtedly, where you see how God has redeemed you as well. I hope that's true for you. I hope that you have testimonies of God's faithfulness to you. I can think of my senior year in Bible college. I can remember in my friend's dorm room when I was watching a video of a sermon being projected onto the bedsheet of his wall. And it's as if the rest of the room faded and my attention was on this message. And it's as if the message was just for me. And I remember in that moment how God did a work in my life and I had no idea what he was preparing me for. And had God not gotten a hold of my heart in that moment, I wouldn't have been prepared to walk through the next season of my life where things turned out far different than I could have expected. But because God got a hold of my heart in that moment, to this day I can look back and realize God knew what he was doing. He put a love for him and for his word in my heart that carried me through that next season of my life in such a way that I can see how God has redeemed my life, how God has helped me to persevere, how God has helped me to overcome in the face of difficulty, in the face of heartache, in the face of twists and turns and setbacks. I'd imagine if I asked you to come up here and share a testimony of what God has done in your life at different seasons, at different times, or different places, you could say the same thing is true for you. That you can see times where God has done a work in your life to help you to persevere, to help you to endure. As I look back over my life, I can see how God has preserved my faith. Is that true for you as well? Amen? You know, I'm not naive, though, to think that there aren't some of you who are currently walking through difficult situations even now and wondering to yourselves why God doesn't do something about it. That you're facing difficulty or setbacks or disappointments in life and you wonder to yourself, why doesn't God change my circumstance? Why doesn't God intervene in this situation? Why does it seem like God is silent? Why does it seem like God 
is far away. It can be challenging for us to have a heart of thankfulness and gratitude when we feel like God has disappointed us. And it's increasingly frustrating when you're surrounded by people who don't understand what you're going through, right? They offer you pad answers, you know, it'll be okay, or God's got this, or he's working a far greater plan than you could ever imagine. And it's frustrating when you talk to people who don't understand what you're facing or what you're walking through. It can be like adding insult to injury. It's hard to embrace not having an answer, which is why we need Psalm 34 in our lives. Because it gives us perspective. perspective. It changes our view of God and how he works in our life. Because as we read this psalm, a psalm of thanksgiving, it sounds like or you might be led to believe or think that David is at a good place in his life. However, if you dig a little bit, just below the surface, you realize that that couldn't be further from the truth. This psalm was written at the lowest point of David's life. And actually, it's one of 14 psalms written by David that we have historical context to what's actually taking place. If you look in your Bible, it says at the beginning of this psalm, as like a little heading, there's a heading there, and it likely says, of David when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, so that he drove him out and he went away. Abimelech is a title that was used for the king of Gath, or the king of the Philistines. It's similar to the title Pharaoh, right? That's what Abimelech means, and it means that the king is our father. So in order for us to understand and to get into David's headspace, let's read... What was going on in David's life when he wrote this psalm? When he penned the words to this incredible song? 1 Samuel 21, verses 10 through 15. That day, David fled from Saul and went to Achish, king of Gath, Abimelech. But the servants of Achish said to him, Isn't this David the king of the land? Isn't he the one they sing about in their dances? Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. David took these words to heart and was very much afraid of Achish, king of Gath. So he pretended to be insane in their presence. And while he was in their hands, he acted like a madman making marks on the doors of the gate and letting saliva run down his beard. Achish said to his servants, Look at that man. He is insane. Why bring him to me? Am I so short of mad men that you have to bring this fellow here to carry on like this in front of me? Must this man come into my house? David is in a tough spot. He's afraid for his life. You see, David at this point, King Saul has now thrown spears at David, trying to pin him to the wall. And David, with the favor of God on his life, has conquered armies for God. Saul starts to get jealous, and he drives David out of the city. 
And where does David find himself? But in the city of Gath, which just so happens to be the hometown of a man named Goliath. Ironically, as David is fleeing for his life, the priest, Ahimelech, gives him some bread and a sword. Unfortunately for David, the sword given to him was Goliath's sword. You know, the one that after hitting Goliath in the head with a stone, he removed from his side to also remove Goliath's head from his body. So now David, running from Saul for his life, finds himself in the city of Gath with a literal target strapped to his side. Let's just say that people begin to notice. They begin to recognize who David is. There's this catchy song that people sang, right? Saul has slain his thousands, David his tens of thousands. Apparently, it was a hit. Not just in Israel, but apparently it made its way even into Philistine country. They were even singing this song there. And sure enough, this is that David. The David who has killed his tens of thousands. So people notice. Surely this is David. There's no way this could get any worse for him. He's backed into a corner. He's afraid for his life, but it gets worse. Instead of David taking it like a man, right? Stepping up to the plate, realizing this is it for me. I'm done. I'm going to go out swinging. I'm going to go out fighting. I'm going to take out as many of these Philistines as I can. I've killed my tens of thousands after all, haven't I? Instead of David taking it like a man, he devises a brilliant plan. And he pretends to act like a crazy person. He starts carving into the gates different symbols. Who knows what he was carving? But he starts carving marks on the doors of the gate. And he begins to drool into his beard. This is not a good look for David, the future king of Israel. Oddly enough, God in his sovereignty uses David's embarrassing behavior to cause Achish to respond. Do I lack madmen that you brought this fellow to behave like a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? He lets David go. What in the world? His mortal enemy, right? The Philistines, they have David, the future king of Israel, in their possession, they could have taken him out and David acts like a crazy person and they let him walk scot-free. That's crazy. What a foolish move on Abimelech's part. And because of this, David narrowly escapes with his life. It's like that part of the movie where it seems like things go from bad to worse and the good guy is caught and surely you know, they're done for, and then out of nowhere, an unexpected saving moment, they're set free, and the tables turn, and suddenly the, the story starts to go into the favor of the good guy, right? It's like that moment in the movie. And now, where does David find himself? Do you think he just marches back to Israel, and they just crown him king? No. David, from the cave of Adullam, surrounded by fellow fugitives, pens this incredible song to God. One of the aspects that makes this psalm 
so remarkable is that David wrote it in a way that it could be easily remembered. There's 22 verses to this psalm. There's 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. And each line of the psalm starts with the next letter in the Hebrew alphabet. And he did this so that his men could remember how God was faithful to David and spared his life. So as we look at this psalm more closely together, I want to talk about the ABCs of living a life of gratitude. Living a life of gratitude begins with acknowledging the goodness of God. Living a life of gratitude begins with acknowledging the goodness of God. As David begins this song by praising God, he says that he will bless the Lord and his praise will continually be in his mouth. So often we think of receiving blessings from God, right? But we don't think about being able to bless God with our words. And here David is speaking a good word about God. And his love for the Lord is making its way to his lips. Do you do that? Do you testify of the goodness of God? Someone said no, that was a perfect timing. <laughs> do you testify of God's goodness in your life? Even in the midst of difficulty, do you sit back and consider how good God has been to you? And does that cause you to be moved to a place where you bless God with your words? Where you can't help but speak about the goodness of your God? He goes on to say that his soul makes its boast in the Lord. Here now we see David bragging about God and he is sharing the goodness of God at work in his life. He's giving a testimony of how great God is. David is so excited that it says in this psalm, he invites all who are humble to magnify and exalt the Lord together. We must not miss that David is addressing the humble because it is the humble who have the ability to magnify God. If you are not humble, you magnify yourself. But if you are humble, you magnify God. It's the humble, right? Like Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, it is the poor in spirit who recognize that they have nothing. They've got nothing to offer. They can't do anything apart from God. And so when they take inventory of their life, they understand that anything they have that is good is a reflection of the goodness of God at work in their life. To see the goodness of God and to be able to praise him for it requires that you walk in humility. Additionally, when we think of magnifying God, it does not mean making God bigger than he already is, right? That's not what it means to magnify. It means making God bigger in your life. God is already God, right? You can't make God bigger than he is. You can't talk enough good about God. You can't boast 
highly enough about the God. You don't even understand God. I don't. I can't even begin to wrap my mind around just how great God is, right? And so when he says to magnify God, it's not to make God bigger than he already is. Instead, it means to make him bigger in our own lives, in our eyes, which is only possible if we humble ourselves by laying low to the ground and making God our focus. That's what it means to magnify God. The key to acknowledging the goodness of God is found in the first verses of this psalm. With humble hearts, God's praise should continually be in our mouths. We should be boasting about God and magnifying him. The first step in living a life of gratitude begins with acknowledging the goodness of God. Amen? The second step in living a life of gratitude is realizing that the Christian experience is better together. I love this point because if, if, if we're not careful to catch it, it's, it's missed on us. It just goes right over our head. Think about who David wrote this psalm to and why he wrote it. David is surrounded by his fellow fugitives. He's running from the law, right? He's running from the king. And he's surrounded by his fellow fugitives. And in this moment of penning this incredible song, he catches a glimpse of what God is doing in his life. God is providing David with a band of brothers. And this shared experience will bind them together in a way that will help them all make it through this difficult time. After all, that is why David wrote this psalm. And it is why God gave it to us in his goodness. Not just for those that David was thinking of in the cave. God gave us this psalm so that we could join in with David in singing praise to our God. So that we could be encouraged along with David and the countless men and women who came before us and stand as a testimony to God's faithfulness. Consider this quote from a commentary that I read. Among the redeemed in glory, there is not one who looks back and sees that on earth there was any mistake in God's conduct toward them. So, consider this with me. Who is your partner in crime? Who are you, like David, running from the law with? How cool, yeah, I use the word cool, how cool would it be if as a church, we could be like this group of fugitives on the run. And that we would have these shared experiences of God's power at work in each of our lives to stand as a testimony so that we can make the greatest impact for the kingdom of God. How amazing would that be if together we could band like a band of fugitives, like a band of brothers and sisters in Christ who have these shared experiences of God's power at work in our lives so that we could together spur one another on towards good works. That sounds like something I want to be a part of. That sounds like a church that I want to be a part of. 
we must not miss the importance of the word together in Psalm 34. There is something about not containing the goodness of God at work in your life, but sharing it with others, like sharing a meal with others. It's like sharing the hope that we have with others who need that same hope. Not only does it help us appreciate God, but it allows the world to see God at work in our lives, and it encourages others to other believers as well. This is important for us, I think, at least, to be reminded of in this season. As we gather together and worship with one another, we exemplify for the world around us of the hope that we have in Christ, and we testify to God's ability to sustain us. We need to band together as the body of Christ. Is that even a desire that you have? Is that even something that you want for yourself? That you could have brothers and sisters in Christ who could come alongside of you to encourage you to fulfill the call of God on your life. That's what David had. That's what I want. Is that something that you want as well? That we could be a church that can make that kind of impact for the kingdom of God. You know, I personally feel convicted when I read this psalm, considering that I have not always been as vocal as I should be about God's goodness in my life. Have I been so prideful, not humble, like David says to be, that I couldn't see the goodness of God in my life? That we would remain silent at a time when the world so desperately needs the hope that we have so let's join with David, lifting our voices in praise to God, because when we all sing, it sounds better together, doesn't it? So, so far we've discussed that a life of gratitude begins with acknowledging the goodness of God, and through the shared experience of our testimonies, gratitude is expressed best together, or we're better together. And then finally, David shifts in verse 11 to teaching and shares how we are most likely to experience God's work in our lives, how we're most likely to experience the power of God at work, which comes from a commitment to righteousness. We must be committed to righteousness, amen? We must be committed to doing the right thing because it's the right thing, not because it's of benefit to us. So after inviting us to join in praise with him and testifying of God's goodness, David tells us to try God out for ourselves. Similar to when you try something delicious and say, you gotta give this a shot, you gotta try this, you gotta take this for a spin, right? That kind of thing. David is inviting us to taste and see, to experience for ourselves the goodness of God. Let's be reminded then of the condition in which David found himself when he wrote these words. This is not a man unfamiliar with difficulty, yet he is convinced that the best way to overcome that difficulty is by trusting in God through it, and that we will be blessed on the other side of it. Out of his experience, he takes the position of a teacher, and in verse 11, he says, come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. 
When we learn to fear God, we will fear nothing else. Do you believe that? That when God is your greatest fear in life, when you fear God appropriately, that you don't have to be afraid of anything else. Of course, this is an appropriate fear of God as opposed to an inappropriate fear of God as if he were an abusive father. That's not what we're talking about. Uh, John, 1 John teaches us that perfect love casts out fear. The word for fear and connection to God here is different from the fears and the worries that we have in our daily lives. When David invites us to fear the Lord, he is speaking of the fear of God in a helpful way. It's a fear that gives us confidence that this God we are praising is far greater and mightier than all other fears that we could face. Earlier in the psalm, as we read, David said that God had delivered him from all of his fears. So now David is teaching us the fear of the Lord because he realizes when we fear the Lord, we know not to be afraid of anything else that might come against us. And if I had to guess, there's probably a lot of fears that you and I are walking through right now. And so if you want to overcome those fears, the concerns, the worries that plague you, that keep you up at night, the answer to overcoming those fears begins and starts with a healthy fear of God. A healthy and helpful fear of God is similar to that of a child to their parent, right? That a child has a healthy fear and respect of their parent. Maybe not so much in our world today. <laughs> not like when I was growing up. You know what I mean? Whew. My dad would like touch his belt and that would send shivers down my spine. You know what I mean? Now it's like, bring it on, you know? <laughs> it's like, it's different, it's changed. But a healthy and helpful fear of God is like the relationship of a child to their parent. It lays the foundation for a blessed life. And it creates within us a commitment to righteousness. So here is perhaps what I think is the most helpful piece of advice that I've learned in reading this psalm and Proverbs like it. Do the right thing because it's the right thing. Do the right thing because it is the right thing. Be committed to righteousness because most of the time it will result in blessings. Not always. David acknowledges that many are the afflictions of the righteous. Still, because you are committed to righteousness, you can be guaranteed that even when things don't go your way, ultimately you will be blessed because God will use it for his glory and for your benefit, and he will always deliver you. If you want to have testimonies of God's mighty work on display in your life, commit yourself to righteousness. And like David, you will have ample opportunity to praise and give glory to God. So again, do the right thing because it is the right thing. Don't try to find shortcuts in life by talking about others so that you can feel better about yourself. David addresses that in this psalm, doesn't he? Don't try to find shortcuts in life by trying to magnify yourself. 
Don't try to find shortcuts in life by trying to, in your own strength, find ways in which you can get yourself further towards the goal that you have. Don't try to find shortcuts. Instead, make a commitment to righteousness and be faithful. As New Testament believers, we have even more encouragement to live this way because we are clothed with the righteousness of Christ. So I realize the temptation, but what about this life, right? What about this life right here, right now? What about all of my hopes? What about all of my dreams? What about all of my desires? Think about this with me. This life does not matter if you do not have the hope of redemption. Because the slightest setback dashes our hopes and dreams, does it not? People in the world face difficulty too, don't they? But what hope do they have of overcoming if in the process of trying to accomplish all of their hopes, all of their dreams, all of their desires, if it's completely undone at the sign of the slightest difficulty? What hope do they have if in the process of trying to pursue all that they feel will make them happy, their life doesn't quite go according to plan? This life does not matter if we do not have the hope of redemption because the slightest difficulty dashes our hopes and dreams. So turn to God and praise the one who can redeem your life and give you eternal hope. Amen? Psalm 34 is a song for us to remind ourselves whenever we face times of difficulty in our lives, if like David, we want to learn to live a life of gratitude and blessing, it starts with acknowledging the goodness of God, recognizing that we are better together, and committing to righteousness. Amen? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you. Lord, as the worship team comes, God, I thank you for your word, God. I thank you that we have so much to be thankful for. And God, I, I get it. It's, it's, it can be hard at times to be thankful when things aren't going according to plan. But Lord, what do people in the world do when things don't go according to plan and they can't turn to you? God, I pray that tonight we would turn to you. That God, no matter what we're facing, no matter what we're going through, God, that we would turn to you because you redeem the life of the righteous. And God, only you can give us eternal hope. Lord, I pray that we would learn, God, to acknowledge your goodness in our lives. That we would recognize we are better together. And Lord, that we as your people would be committed to righteousness. God, I thank you for this night and for this time that we get to spend together. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.